as a church family, we're journeying through Matthew 2 as a kind of a companion piece to our study on Sunday mornings of 1 Peter. Peter is a prominent person um, in the gospel stories, obviously, as we find in Matthew, and he's drawing from uh, a lot of the words of Jesus and his time with Jesus as he's writing 1 Peter. Um, and so we're walking through Matthew together. And yesterday was Matthew 1. We looked at like the fascinating genealogy, and it was fascinating. If you missed that, you can always go back and watch all these. They're posted online. But this morning is Matthew 2. And if you're at all familiar with the Bible, you know that this gets into the birth narratives of Jesus. And we're so accustomed, so attuned to only reading these at Christmas or using them as a point of Bible trivia, you know, the, the typical, how many wise men were there? And there was three, right? No, that's not what the text says. And we can kind of like partition off the birth narratives as these quaint little things until we get to the real action in the life and ministry of Jesus. But remember when Matthew was writing, that's not the way he viewed this at all. In fact, he places the birth narrative of Christ in an incredibly prominent place at the beginning of his of his gospel for a very important reason. Remember, one of Matthew's chiefs, chief aims is to show that, in fact, Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the promised coming Messiah. Now, he's going to be a suffering king, but, he is a, but he's nonetheless the king. And if you want to sort of have one banner over Matthew chapter 2, it would be something like this. King Jesus, even as a quote-unquote helpless infant, is greater, greater and mightier than all the kings of the world. And we're going to see this on display as it's Jesus versus Herod. Okay, so, so Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, we're introduced um, to Herod. Actually, he needs no introduction because it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, and this would have been widely understood every person far and wide knew who King Herod was. This was There was a number of Herods, but they were all descended from the one Herod, Herod the Great. Now, by this time that Matthew's writing, Herod is, is dead for many years, but just like Abraham Lincoln would need no introduction, or George Washington, or on the other side of the spectrum, Hitler and Stalin need no introduction, Herod needed no introduction. He was a ruthless tyrant. Um, he was brilliant. He oversaw all kind of building projects, and he was the one that spearheaded the rebuilding of the second temple in, in Jerusalem. But, um, I mean, he was notorious for being paranoid, for eliminating all rivals to the throne, even many of his sons he had killed and their families. Um, when we were in Israel a couple of years ago, uh, taking a Four Oaks tour, we toured one of the fortresses that Herod built. It was called Masada. And um, Herod had these fortresses spread out all across Judea and Samaria. Uh, they were sort of safe houses where Herod reckoned if he ever needed to be on the run or people were trying to overthrow him or rebel, he had a place to go. And these fortresses were impregnable nearly. And he, this is just kind of gives you the mindset of the man. And when, when Matthew says Herod the king, everybody immediately knows um, who who this is. Now here, of course, we have in Matthew 2, the journey of the wise men from the east intersecting with Herod. Now, 
when we think about these wise men who are coming from the east, you need to understand that these are these are most likely astrologers. Okay, they're astrologers from from Babylon, and and they are making a journey because they have been observing the heavens and they see some sort of sign in the heavens. Now, not to get too far off on this, but there's been all sorts of theories. What is this? Is this like asteroids? Are these interplanetary conjunctions. There's a fascinating book by a very reputable source called The Christ Comet, okay, which analyzes the data and astronomical movements of that time and what all these terms mean. And it posits that this, in fact, was a comet, that this was a, a an amazing celestial event, um, which would account for the fact that it lasted seemingly a number of days, probably would have taken them at least three weeks, if not a month or longer, to journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. They were following this celestial event in the sky um, as it arced and curved across the earth. They were sort of following it. And anyway, there, there's all sorts of interesting, it's an interesting, fascinating book. It's just a theory. But whatever they were watching was enough to to get their attention that something was going on. Now, now, why did they associate that with the birth of a king? So we know they were following the comet, but it says in verse 2, when they came to Herod, they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star. Now, what is that about? Why would they have associated these pagan astrologers, uh, associated this comet or the celestial event with the announcement of a, of a king? Well, remember that the Israelites had been exiled to Babylon some 400 years prior to this. And, and there were many Jews who still lived in Babylon. Remember, there were many teachings and prophecies and, and sharing of books um, among different religions. And no doubt, these astrologers, these wise men, had heard of the prophecies, places like Micah 2 or Numbers 24, 17, which talked about uh, the rising of the star in the east and how it was associated with the salvation of Judah, a scepter, a ruler, someone who was going to come. And apparently they, they saw this celestial event. It was so obvious. They knew it had to mean something. They looked into the Hebrew scriptures and here they go. And they are off to see and worship this newborn king. Now, in a lot of ways, this passage is a real indictment Okay, of the people who should have been watchful, who should have been expecting such an event, and that was the religious leaders of Jerusalem. Um, it's interesting that, that, that when Herod heard about these prophecies, heard about this celestial event, he was obviously witnessing it as well. It says that um, he summoned, this is verse 4, the, the chief priests and the scribes of the people and inquired of them. And and. They obviously knew the passage. They quote Micah 5, 2 to them. And understand that this was such an obvious celestial event. Everyone knew something was afoot. But yet we see this posture on the part of the religious leaders. It says that Herod and he and all of Jerusalem were stirred up. They were concerned. See, they valued their position in Jewish society. They valued the relative peace they had with Herod the king. They didn't want to do anything to disrupt that even if it meant acknowledging the coming of the Messiah and the fulfillment of a biblical prophecy. And, and so kind of embedded here is Matthew's indictment. Here you have these pagan okay, astrologers who are eagerly expecting, waiting on some sort of coming hope. They knew not what at this point. 
and contrast that to the people who should have been looking, who should have been hoping, who should have understood the signs, and maybe they did understand them. That's the indictment. Um, but it was going to be too disruptive for them to acknowledge this to Herod. Nonetheless, what we see here is a picture Matthew is giving us of Jesus being worshipped as a king. That, that, that this is what kings deserve. This is what, this is what kings foster. Here you have people traveling from afar to come and worship this newborn baby. Now, if you look at verse 13 and 14, we have a what is now a dire situation, okay? Because the, the, the wise men, the astrologers, have told Herod what uh, they are searching for. Herod has brought the leaders in. He's told them what he knows about this prophecy. They head off to uh, Bethlehem. If you've ever been to Bethlehem, it's, it's right outside Jerusalem to the south. Um, again, if this was a celestial event, if it was a comet, you know, this is going to be in the sky for a number of weeks, days. They're following its arc. It's leading them. It appears to be hovering over the, uh, the place where Jesus and, and uh, Joseph and Mary are. Again, just a theory, but it's, it's very plausible, I think. But nonetheless, we see that there is this imminent threat. Herod wants them to go find the king, this baby king, so that he can eliminate him as a threat to his throne. And look at verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So here we are. Matthew's telling us that from the very first days, Satan is seeking to wage war okay, against God's anointed. He wants to eliminate this promised Messiah. And, and he wants to do it through the most powerful king, probably next to Caesar, in the world at that time. So do you see what Matthew is setting up for us? Baby Jesus, King Jesus, seemingly helpless, being pursued, attacked by the uh, most powerful king in the world at that time, waging war against God's anointed. So that's what Matthew is setting up for us. I believe it's to this event um, that John speaks about in Revelation chapter 12. And, and interestingly, this is, this is it's a symbolic picture. It could be a literal picture if it's a picture of a celestial event. But listen to Revelation 12, 1 through 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And a dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So what John is giving us is an apocalyptic vision okay, of, of this idea that even from the very beginning, Satan was seeking to eliminate this coming king. And we see this sort of life and death struggle um, 
that is taking place as God's anointed, the gospel, the future of the church is being attacked, is being eliminated. And obviously Herod is ruthless in this, but being warned. So Joseph and Mary go to Egypt and it tells us in this back to Matthew 2 now that Herod then sought to eliminate every male child under the age of two. Um, it was a ruthless, barbaric um, extermination that was that was going on to eliminate all these baby boys because he wanted to kill the coming king. And again, what Matthew is showing us is that despite the machinations of the most powerful king in the world, here is King Jesus, baby Jesus, being protected, being uh, surrounded by the grace of God, the protection of God, that even at the height of his greatest power, Herod could not defeat even a baby king. Okay, do you see the, the irony that's being that's being painted here? Um, that, that God is sovereignly prote protecting his anointed one. He is going to be the long-standing king who will, who will rule the world one day. And then he is spirited off to Egypt. Okay. And then again, later he's brought back to Nazareth, where, which is where Jesus grows up at his hometown. And again, that idea of the secret Messiah. No one knows he's there. He's being preserved as a remnant until the time, uh, right time approaches. Think, been reading a lot about the Reformation this past year and thinking about the one of the mottos of the of the Reformation: "Ex tenebrae lux, out of darkness light." Okay, so for centuries the church had laid dormant; the gospel was almost dead, almost extinguished, except God was preserving a remnant, and the gospel was preserved, and that's really what we see here. God is preserving his son who will one day come and die as a suffering king for the sins of his people. So, so just a couple of application points for us as we wrap up. We have to know that regardless of the powers of the world, kings and kingdoms rise and fall all the time. Um, God sets them up. God takes them down, which means that regardless of what we see happening in the world with pandemics and uh, the persecution of religious liberties or uh, tyrants or dictators or people that we vehemently disagree with politically, whatever the case may be, that, that God is sovereign in control of all that. Number two, that God exercises his sovereign rule and reign through his son. And this is only possible not because Jesus came during his first coming and wiped out all of his enemies, but because Jesus came as a suffering king to pay the penalty for sin, to establish his eternal kingdom, which in Christ we will all be a part of forever. And here we are, um, last, last application point, Jesus growing up sort of incognito in Nazareth, waiting for that day when he will be summoned by his father to public ministry to once and for all, put to death sin and Satan. And so it's not, it's not coincidental uh, that we see where Matthew takes us next in Matthew chapter 3 is and following is going to be uh, Jesus now confronting Satan in the wilderness. Um, Satan is always this menacing presence and we see God's sovereign care of and through his son um, in an ongoing way. So that's Matthew chapter 2. We'll be in Matthew chapter 3 tomorrow. Again, you can read that on your own. You can access the audio, the Dwell audio app, 
And under the 30-day plan, there is a, a little plan called Explore Matthew in a Month. You can listen to it. Um, it's a great thing to do while you exercise, you're out and about driving, running errands, breaking social distancing guidelines, not honoring the quarantine, whatever it is, okay? Um, those are great ways to, to, to stay up with our reading and our series. Okay, that's it, Four Oaks. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll head out. Lord, you, King Jesus, amazing, that even though he was the tiniest, quote-unquote, of kings, but yet, Lord, he was the King of kings and Lord of lords, greater than anything the world had to offer. And you have sovereignly placed him there, protected him so that he could go and die for our sins. Lord, we know one day Jesus will return. And this time it will be to set up his permanent kingdom. It will be to judge his enemies. And Father, we on that day want to be found in you, found in Christ. So Lord, point us to him this season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us, Four 